to eavesdropping at the movies i'm mike and i'm jose and we've just uh, come back from isle of dogs by wes anderson wes anderson isle of dogs not i love dogs Arrest. although one suspects that that's a little joke <laughs> it's uh it's about uh, it's stop motion so it's going back to uh, fantastic mr fox mm. uh or, you know that style um although i haven't seen that i um, have really good it was fantastic. People loved it. Um, no George Clooney in this one, though. Um, that's not a bad thing, necessarily. No, I'm just saying. It's set in Japan, in a sort of dystopian, uh, you know, kind of near-future-type Japan. Not futuristic, but, you know, sort of... It's based on... Ja- I think a certain look must be based on Japanese crime movies, Yakuza's and... Well, I think I read that Anderson said he was inspired particularly by Kurosawa. Yes, well, because uh, he must have been, because the villain, to me, looked a bit like Toshiro Mifune. Right. Though, you know, I, I, like, I haven't read anything on the film, right? sure. so I just can't be sure, but definitely there's that resemblance. The film starts off with a, a, a prologue, which tells you the story of how dogs came to be hated mm. in, in this part of Japan, um, called uh, Mega, Megasaki City. Yes. Megasaki City. Uh, Mayor Kobayashi has banished all the dogs because a dog flu has started to spread around, uh, make all the dogs mangy and stuff, and it might spread to humans and um, dogs are all sneezing and stuff. So they go, right, we're going to get all the dogs out of here, we're going to put them on this trash island. Like, literally an island where they dump all their trash. Yeah. Um, And we love cats. I thought the story was that they just hated cats, and actually this whole thing about the flu was just a, a means of killing them off. Yeah, well, there was like an ancient sort of war or something between dogs and cats and dogs were the cats were the victors and dogs were kind of driven out and there there is a suggestion throughout the film that the dog flu was created yes. by people as an excuse to get rid of the dogs or a way to get rid of the yes, dogs. Yes, because there was an overpopulation there were there's a, a there's a bit of, of a conspiracy thing going on underneath it. Um, because uh, the film starts off with this election between Mayor Kobayashi, who's the incumbent, and this scientist who claims that he's very close to a cure for the dog flu, mm. um, but he's uh, sort of dismissed and he doesn't win. Yes. Um, so all the dogs are sent to uh, this island. Probably six months down the line, I think, uh, this boy flies his own plane over there. He's like 12 years old. He flies a little sort of almost handmade plane because mm. he's looking for his dog. And this is the thrust of this film. He just wants to find his dog. He meets up with a load of abandoned dogs. Yes. And they, they sort of form a pack and, and go off and try and look for him. So you get, these, you get the story on the island. And you also get the story back at home of the kid's gone missing. It turns out the kid is the nephew and ward of the mayor. Mm. Uh, and also this, this kind of bubbling conspiracy theory story of what's actually going on underneath it. And why, why didn't the, the scientists win the election and... Yes. Why we hate dogs so much and all this sort of thing. I just think um, there's more art and, you know, understanding of the human condition and adventure and laughs in this film, you know, like in two minutes of this film than in all of the Spielberg film that we saw earlier today. <laughs> all the Ready Player One. Yeah. Uh, Pretty much. It's, it's incredibly energetic and beautiful the music is fantastic and gives gives the, the film such a a feeling of place and tempo and movement there are scenes which are just underscored by this dum, 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 
dum dum with you know kind of other music on the top, but this beat it keeps everything moving and it makes things feel tense and involving mm. um, and and sort of Japanese as well. Yes, um, and graphically it's a masterpiece. You know the compositions, the style of art that's used, uh, you know, to convey the story, and the various ways in which it's done. It's really so imaginative. Like you know, so sometimes there's split screen, and sometimes it looks like a comic book. You know, the way of reading, and it uses Japanese art, you know, the way that you read across the figure, right? It's almost like a narrative. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it uses, like, shadow screens, like, you know, early animated films, yeah? It uses silhouette, uh, and it uses cell animation as well. It's quite interesting where, so the the figures are the stop-motion figures, so it's quote-unquote real-life, real photography. Mm. But then you see them being shown on television screens, yes. and on the television screens, they're, they're cell-animated versions of themselves. Yes, fantastic. Wonderful. Yes. It's just wonderful. Um, and it's so funny, you know, so, uh, you know, it, it has two key haikus, which I forget what they are, mm. you know, but it says something like, you know, in the morning... You know the springs will flower, and then it says north, south, west. <laughs> like, you know something Just to that doesn't fill make in sense. The rest of the <laughs> so the film is very self-aware, as is true of Wes Anderson, and also just very witty, and it has a generous spirit, right? So you know, kind of, you you get a range of 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 just interesting representations and characterizations because obviously everyone wants to work with Wes Anderson, mm. so he's got a whole who's who of people doing voices. It's Brian Cranston. Do you want to tell you the cast? Yeah. I'll, I'll, tell, you, I'll tell you the Americans because I don't know the, the, the Japanese. The Japanese. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, we should say that the film is that the, the dogs are voiced uh, in English and the Japanese characters, uh, the, the humans that is, are Japanese, they're, they're voiced in Japanese and yes. then they're given no subtitles. The film comes up with the title card at the start saying, uh, the, the only time you'll understand the Japanese people are when someone interprets them. Yeah, when a dog translates. Uh, but <laughs> but a dog, on the other hand, all the barks have been translated into English. Yes, so, exactly. So the the uh, English speaking cast are Brian Cranston, Edward Norton, Bob Balaban, Bill Murray, Jeff Goldblum, Greta Gerwig, Francis McDormand, Scarlett Johansson, uh, Harvey Keitel, F. Murray Abram, Yoko Ono's got a cameo, Tilda Swinton, Fisher Stevens, Lee Schreiber, Courtney B. Vance is the narrator, and Frank Wood. It's an amazing cast. It's an cast. unbelievable cast. Yeah. Uh, and all such recognisable voices. You feel them. They've got yeah, texture. Yeah, yeah. And they're very well cast voices. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, um, and the actors do wonderful things with them. And, and, you know, this thing about, like, actors flocking to work with Wes Anderson, well, who wouldn't, really? You know, because he gives them things to work with. And I think they do something, like, very beautiful. Uh, it's very, very funny. You do get, like, a sense of adventure. Even, like, even the suspense bits, right? And it is stop animation. And the suspense bits were kind of, you know, suspenseful and, and witty. Mm. Yeah, like, kind of, you know, the dogs going through the... The thing that'll the metal. Well, that that was almost like a fast thing, really. That was like a Wallace and Gromit sort of yes, Goldo machine thing. Yes, but it becomes so. Like it starts off. Oh as, sure, yes. You know what they make it, it. Yeah, sure. and then it becomes funny. Yeah, so, I love the way that things are, are filmed in depth as well. Like I think these films would look amazing if they were shot in three D. Which would be, it would it would be easy to it always is with stop motion because you mm. only have to move the camera a little bit and take another photo. Mm. Um, or, you know, take another still, but um. Uh, the the way that you get this this primary main pack of six uh, five dogs, um, and the camera kind of swoops between them, and it, it, there's almost so much balance in the way Wes Anderson composes shots, whether it's that they're completely symmetrical, 
or the kind of things coming from the left and the right at kind of equal angles. But then, but then he'll also have like one dog on the left hand side of the frame, right up close, yeah. and the other dogs sort of composed quite deliberately, yeah. but further back on the other side. It's beautiful, beautiful, arresting, interesting looking shots, and also the light. Like the the film creates a sense of dimensionality, you know, because there are shots where you know the dog's hair glistens in the light, mm. right, and you get this sense of depth and texture, and you know, uh, and so so you know, unlike Spielberg's film this afternoon, which seemed <coughs> washed out, like the colors seemed all washed out, really. Mm. Um, this is kind of quite intense, but also quite purposeful. Right, that you know, there's a color palette, right? So you know, Mega City or whatever it's called is all like black and red, yeah, with splashes of red, yeah, uh, and it looks beautiful. It looks stunning. Like every element of it kind of looks stunning. Actually, it was just a joy to see. Uh, do you think there's something uncomfortable in the idea that um, the uh, English-speaking roles of the dogs um, are the sort of the, the good guys? And the Japanese roles, the humans, are the baddies. Um, not really. Partic- particularly considering that the one human who's white, the exchange student, is the kind of one who digs into the conspiracy and sort of helps save yeah, the day. Yeah, she's the heroine. You know, but the hero's Japanese, and it all takes place in Japanese culture, mm-hmm. right? So, and you can imagine the film kind of... Um, I think it's more of a dogs-humans thing rather than a Western Japanese thing, because I imagine in Japan the film will be, the dogs will be dubbed by Japanese actors, Mm. you know. Uh, So, um, no, that didn't bother me, actually. Um, Maybe it should. I mean, what what I noticed more was actually that it's kind of like a real boys film, right? Like, you know, uh, so, you know, the the show dog is uh, a nutmeg, Scarlett Johansson playing, you know, the Scarlett Johansson like mm. sex symbol role and so on, and love interest, and love interest, mm. and so on. And actually, the girl reporter, Western girl, you know, just played by Greta Gerwig. I actually, I love the animation of it. I love the visualization of it. But actually, I didn't think Greta Gerwig voiced it very well. Really, uh, that was that was my my one little okay. beef. You know, and I think I you I have to be careful because why wasn't she voicing it well? <laughs> you know, and. I, I thought, do you have something against Greta Gerwig? Which I don't, you know. It's, uh, but I'm just reminding myself that I wasn't as enthusiastic as some were about Lady Bird. But that was just because people were so... Uh, people were really hyped it up. Were hyped it up so much. But I mean, I do love her. Uh, but I, I thought the other actors were much more skilled, you know, at extract, particularly Brian Cranston, actually. He was great. You know, uh, at extracting almost like every nuance of meaning in it. And I just think it's ironic, you know, that Wes Anderson's view of dogs and the interactions between dogs and, you know, a dog's life and being a runt, you know, or, or, or kind of being a stray and how much, how much more that communicates about what it is to be human, and, mm-hmm. you know, and feelings and emotions than, you know, the stupid Spielberg film. That well, we saw stop talking about Spielberg. <laughs> done that. Well, no, well, you, you know, kind of we, we saw it in the same day. It's an obvious know, point of reference. You- but, you, but all you're doing is going on about how much you hated it. Well, but I'm, I'm illuminating how wonderful <laughs> this is in comparison. I think Brian Cranston's character uh, is... He's really the centrepiece of the film, and, and he's the most interesting one, because with the exception of the mayor, who has a, a change of heart right at the end of the film, he's the only character who 
really changes. And that's mm-hmm. an interesting, yeah, something interesting in that respect. Because um, obviously he starts off as a stray. All the other animals there uh, were once pets who've been exiled. So they know what it is to live in a nice house, and they know what it is. They talk about their their favorite meals, yeah. And they've all had these great ones, and he's they've all been loved, and right. he's never been loved, and he's never really been loved. And he his his life is one of escape and scrounging Survival. around in, in bins. Um, but then it turns out that he is the the brother he has of the family. He's yeah, he's the brother of the dog uh, that the boy's looking for. And, you know, underneath his... Because he's, he's a black dog at the mm. start. And then he, he has a wash and all of a sudden he's white. Yes. With these, with these little black spots. He's beautiful. Mm. And he doesn't recognise himself. And it mm. kind of shakes him. And, the, and you know, he he learns to... to uh, he, he plays fetch. So the kid throws a stick. And the dog's going, I'm not going to go fetch the stick. Mm. I'm not. I don't do fetch. <laughs> and then he goes, okay, I'm only going to do it because I feel pity for you. I'm not doing it because I like it. Mm. He brings the stick back. He drops it. And then the kid nuzzles his face and strokes him. And and you could just tell oh, something's changing him. That's yes. the only character for which that kind of thing happens. Yes. That makes him the most interesting one. The dog welled up, and I felt you welling up next to me. I didn't. I didn't quite. <laughs> but I really. But I liked it. You know, I liked. And yeah. I think Brian Cranston, uh, it plays it so brilliantly. His his voice performance is pretty stunning, actually. Mm. Where he, you you really feel you feel his alienation and his kind of abandonment issues at the start, and or his you know kind of loneliness. And his desire to be the leader of the pack, mm. um, and, and then and you really feel it in his voice. You feel him softening mm. and learning what it what love is, what mm. it is to be loved, and that you and that it's a kind of two way street. And you can give some back, and um, I think that's great. I really really love that. Yes, um, I I just loved it visually. Like I just think it's a kind of masterpiece. It's kind of an example of how imaginative. Um, you know these animated films can be I mean there was that scene with the dog where it was like a flashback or a dream sequence but you know there were all those bottles right and just the intensity of those greens and oranges and then the dog itself was in shadow like in a noir right um, and it was just so beautiful to see mm. right it was and it was and it was almost like a different style of animation than what had gone on before and actually you could see that there are different different styles of drawings are used very expressively at different points in the film, right? So you get, for example, you know, the Japanese painting telling you the story of how, you know, this conflict between the dogs and the cats came to be. Right, that's your right? prologue story. That's the prologue story, which is like a, like a Japanese fable, but it's done, you know, in the style of those Japanese scroll paintings, right? Um, and then you have, like, you know, the, the scenes that are set in the lab, and they're, like, really graphic and sharp and... Right, and then you have the scenes with the uncle, which have like a real kind of, you know, a triumph of the will aspect mm. to them, right? You know, um, in in terms of composition, um, it's just very beautiful. Uh, yeah, I'm very careful. Yes. I, mean, I think I think that's why I really appreciate. Like, you can tell the work, you know, sort of. There's no, you know, I mean, Wes Anderson is the last person in the world who used shaky cam, you know, mm. and also shaky cam in a stop motion film as well is. It's not going to happen. Yes. Put the camera down and shoot. But um, um, do you think there's a, a, a political sort of political or social statement in that about? I'm thinking particularly about the kind of a, uh, the the vilification of a certain type. So in this film, it's dogs, but in real life, it could be like you know, immigrants. immigrants. <laughs> of course, there's no immigrants question. or benefit cheats and their vilification and their use as a political tool to to maintain power. You know, we see at yes. one point the mayor wins an election with 98.6 percent of the votes. 
he also poisons his enemy yes. and, and kills him. I think there's no doubt that there's meant to be a commentary on contemporary life, you know, and on totalitarianism and on rigging elections and on using minorities as scapegoats, you know. So I think that that is all there, um, you know, as background, really. Um, I think I think the main uh, thrust of uh, the film is about inclusion and acceptance and love, you know, uh, and loyalty. Um, you know, those are all kind of there. But the thing that amazes me about this film is that, you know, it's, it's done with such a light touch. Yeah. It's almost like irreverent, right? So, you know, it'll tell you flashback starts and then flashback ends, right? And it's just kind yeah. of, you know, very witty. It, it kind of, it doesn't take itself too seriously and it wants you to follow the story, you know, and it allows you to do so, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So I loved all of that. The fact that, you know, it was kind of, you know, slightly irreverent, uh, um, you know, I, I, hesitate, I hesitate to say quirky, you know, but... Well, that's the word that's associated with Wes Anderson, isn't it? Quirky. It is. Um, um, but I think it's kind of really associated with his imitators. Remember we talked about Paddington 2 a while back, because mm. I was talking about, particularly in the second half of that film, how a lot of the composition and, and the kind of style of humour mm. uh, seemed very, very similar to Wes Anderson. Not not copying him and not drawing him, but, you know, just mm. similar. Mm. Um, and actually very successful in Paddington 2. Yes. Um, but he... When I first started trying to watch Wes Anderson films, I had a really bad time with them. I watched Royal Tenenbaums particularly. This yeah. was 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and I had a really bad time with it. And it's only in recent times. So basically only the Grand Budapest Hotel and this that I've really, really enjoyed. Oh, I did like um, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Um, yes. I quite like that. I quite like that. Um, but I, I think it's... I, I did find him affected and quirky in the worst way. Um like kind of too knowing about his own style sort of thing. But but as I grow with him, or as I, as I watch films that kind of imitate his style or, or take off from his style and don't do it as well, I kind of see that there's a bit of an X factor with him. Maybe like a Woody Allen or something. Like he has his style and he he's the style. only one who does it that well. I mean, I remember seeing it. I went to see it, uh, uh, the, the Royal Tannenbaum's... Uh, with with my colleague Victor Perkins when the film came out, and we talked about it afterwards, and kind of we were both very intrigued because, like, I wouldn't have, you know, I couldn't say that I liked it, but I was fascinated by. I I, I didn't know how to approach it. Yeah, it was one of those films that kind of you that startled you in the sense you didn't know quite how to inhabit. It felt that it was like a really original voice, right? And that it was doing interesting things. And that, you know, kind of some of them were funny. I I wasn't sure that I was in tune with that sensibility. But you felt very much that it was like, you know, kind of Mm. a new sensibility. It was something that you almost had no experience with how to connect with. I think there's a kind of acquired taste aspect to it, which is is not to say that it's bad, but it's... But you have to learn how to watch his films, I think, or you know, well, maybe, learn how to inhabit them. Maybe he's also learned how to communicate better because that might be you true. know, Grand Budapest Hotel, you know, didn't pose any of those problems to lots of people. Whereas, whereas the Royal Tannenbaums, you know, like I liked it, but it was a bit kind of dislocating. Yeah? Mm. I think animation really suits him as well. It kind of helps you get some sort of 
maybe some sort of distance. Uh-huh. But having said that, the Grand Budapest Hotel was fantastic, and that was fantastic. all live action, and it had it felt really kind of cartoony. Um, felt stylized and, and, like Lubitsch and lively. Yeah, yeah. So maybe Rather I think maybe cartoon. he has just improved as a filmmaker as well. There's also that possibility. Yeah. You think, oh, well, you, you think know. after 20 years you would? You would. <laughs> and also, to be honest, I'm talking about a memory of the Royal Tannenbaums when it came out in the 90s. So. Mm. You know, for all I know, my experience of watching the film again would be a different experience. I'd react to it differently, and I wouldn't have found it so strange. I may have been a bit too young for it when I first tried to watch it. Yes. Um, So there are those things. Anyway, the point is that you know this is fantastic. I hope people go see it. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really good fun. It maybe lulls a little bit. I mean, I wouldn't say like you could have such and such an amount of time cut out of it, but it it does lull a little bit. I think before it gets into the final third. Well. I think feel that. I mean, I, I, I was completely with it until the ending, which I just thought, I mean, I liked the ending very much, but I thought it took too long with it. It mm. explained too much, right? I kind of, yeah. Just how the dogs got back and everything settled down. Yeah, like it, it took about maybe five minutes more than it should to just end. Mm. Like, Perhaps. you know, um, I didn't feel that I needed to know about, you know, the dogs and the puppies and the litter and the, you know. know. I want to show you what happened to everybody. You know, do you need to see the uncle in jail and the changes in the law and then, you know, kind of uh, the puppies and the owl and the, like... Well, I just think, you know, it's established uh, what the world is like and how people are living. And so you just want to take those few seconds to just see everyone in their final position wrapped up how the story ends. Well, it's not a major... I mean, I liked it and I liked the ending and I love the film. But I'm just saying, you know, if I'm trying to find fault with it, that would <laughs> you be. You seem like you are. Yes. Well, <laughs> I know. It's just, it's just wrapped up nice and neat, isn't it? Like a, like a, it's like you can imagine like a storybook, and then it like as the owl flies away at the end, it's sort of the book closes and it goes to the end, like mm. the end of Shrek or something. I think the film would have been just more poetic, better, you know, had it found like an image or you know just one scene to wrap everything perfectly. Because I, I, you know, I don't think that we needed, and it's it's very rare for any story to actually kind of, you know, clue you in as to what happened to to every character like in the in the mm. story. That's well, no, I'm not sure that's true. I mean, when you have like a cast of all these characters that end up in going all all these different directions, you very often get 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 them sort of everyone gets their last moment just so you know where they are. I I, I don't I agree. That, I mean, often what you you know in this case. You would have found, you would have had some resolution to the dog and his master, right? But, you know, you, I mean, it's very rare for films to tell you what, you know, what happened to, like, the uncle and the mayor and the, you know, that evil assistant that he had or whatever. And, you know, and I, this dog and that dog and that dog and that dog and the owl. I mean, that, I just... I, I, I just don't think that's true. I mean, I think you noticed it in this, but... I don't. Okay, well, I, I just know, don't think that's true. I think a lot of films do actually do that, particularly when they're skewed towards the younger sort of markets and they're more kind of family oriented and stuff, which, which this is. You okay, do get those, well, that, that maybe you know. I, I really can't speak about these animated films um, because I'm less experienced in watching them. If you think about the end of something like Paddington, for instance, like okay, the family is a more contained unit in that, so it doesn't take as long to kind of wrap things up. But everyone does get their their little moments at the end to 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 finish off their parts in the story and tell you where they've ended up. It's not that uncommon. It's just that I think it lingered in this, so you noticed it more. Um, I have to think about that. But you know, my feeling right now is that it took too long in doing it. Right? Otherwise, otherwise the story might feel you know unfinished. You go, well, what happened to Sunday? Even though it's kind of obvious that things ended nicely. 
you might still you might go oh well but what happened to such and such a dog you know minor character but I, still, I, I just think that's the way that's the way these, these stories end yeah well uh, perhaps you're right with though, a nice I mean... neat little bow on everyone well, but I just don't think that's true. Anyway, we're, we're really splitting hairs on that one. We're splitting hair, and actually, I think we're losing emphasis because the fact is that, you know, the film is great. It is. You know, um, and it's hugely enjoyable and very, very beautiful to look at. And we recommend that as many so people witty. as possible see it. And witty with camera moves as well, I just wanted to pick up. And there's one point in particular. It's very early on when you're meeting the dogs on the island and the kids getting used to them and they're getting used to each other. And there are bits where all the dogs talk to each other and there's one line of dialogue after another and the camera kind of moves and reframes things. Like, Wes Anderson always seems to find a new way to use the camera in his movies, mm. despite the fact he's got a very recognisable style with the planometrics, mm. symmetrical uh, shots. He's always finding, you know, sometimes he, he, like in Grand Budapest Hotel, he started panning up and panning down, and which, mm. which seemed to be something that he hadn't really done very much of before. Mm. And in this, there, there are these kind of very quick tracks in and tracks out that just slightly reframe things, mm. and they're very funny. They're, they're visually witty, and they just give you energy. And, mm. and there's a lot of that in this, and I think it's there great. Um, and it goes well with the soundtrack as well. I can't emphasize enough. The soundtrack's by Alexandre Desplat, who did The Shape of Water. Right. Forgettable soundtrack. I think won the Oscar but anyway um, <laughs> but in this it's fantastic and it integrates so well with the with the visual design and the and the cinema and the camera movement uh-huh. it's fantastic it's got it's brilliant and and so good at the cinema you know fills your visual field and it's beautiful these great landscapes and very very textured images like you know, so, so I mean, it is a film to see the cinema. Yeah. The colour has depth, the images have depth, you know, the compositions, which I think are very original, you know, um, kind of really envelop you. It's kind of, it's very beautiful. It's very beautiful. And that's actually uh, one of the reasons why I think it would be good in 3D, because I, I watched the um, Nightmare Before Christmas reissue in 3D, so it was shot in 2D back in, whatever it was, 1994. Mm. Um, and then it was... It was uh, Rejigged into 3D for a cinema release like 20 years later, you really felt like these were stick figures on the table in front of you. It like, felt so physical when they did it. And I think you know, kind of model model work, the stop motion like this, you know, a whole new kind of aspect of the film was there, which wasn't in the original. And and you know, this would have looked good in 3D, I think. Uh, which is actually kind of rare to people are so down on 3D and very often you feel like oh it's just there for there to make money uh, you know, they haven't really thought about it but in this you know you you really feel I think uh, so I see that in the soundtrack there's the Rolling Stones and the Kinks and the Who uh, and the band uh, so there's and Van Morrison so actually there is quite a lot of like 1970s uh, uh, music to it and I also see that there's quite a lot of Japanese music with particular uh, uh, strands of the Seven Samurai kind of uh, used uh, in the film. So, so that's interesting to, to find out. Mm. Donovan as well. Um, yeah, so that's kind of quite a lot of that 19, late 60s, early 70s. Singer songwriter, slightly folky. Mm, yeah. yeah, yeah, there is when the, um, the dogs are walking. I also like the bit where the kids on the slide. Yes, just because he's twelve years old, let him go on the slide, man. <laughs> yes, and the dog gets really annoyed with him. Yes, I love the whole humor of that, and also the kind of the anger and the, you know, like you do get a sense of variegated and complex and multi-dimensional kind of people, in a way that you don't get in the Steven Spielberg film. 
<laughs> All right, shall we end it here? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, do go see it. It's really lovely. Yes, you must. Great. All right. Uh, well, thank you very much. We're on uh, Twitter. Yes. We're at Eavesdrop Movies. We're on Facebook. Eavesdropping at the Movies. We've got a website. Eavesdropping at the Movies dot com. And we're on iTunes. We're, we're, uh, iTunes and SoundCloud is where you can hear the podcast, which you probably already knew because you listened to it. Right. There thank you go. very much. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> Good.